Good evening, everyone. Thank you for joining us on Indigenous Flame, where every voice creates a spark. Tonight, we're going to be talking about tribal disenrollment, which is a very contentious issue within Indian country right now. But it's by no means a new trend in what's going on. It's a growing trend akin to a modern day genocide that has legally eliminated thousands of Native people across the United States. As sensationalist as that sounds, Tribal disenrollment does not just nullify a person's tribal affiliation, it strips them entirely of their cultural identities. Tonight, joining me to discuss this issue is Gabe Galanda of Galanda Bradman, who is an Indigenous rights lawyer and has been on the forefront of this issue for quite a while now. So, Gabe, would you please introduce yourself to our listeners? Hi, Johnny. Thank you for having me. Uh, my name is Gabriel Galanda. Yes, I'm an Indigenous rights lawyer here in Seattle, Washington. I belong to the Round Valley Indian tribes of Northern California, uh, specifically Mendocino County uh, and Covalo, descending from the Nomalaki and Konkow peoples. And I'm happy to have now made my home in Seattle here for the last 20 years, where I've uh, dedicated my career to advancing Indigenous rights. And tribal disenrollment is something I work on, honestly, on a daily basis and have uh, for the last uh, nine consecutive years, having represented uh, well over a thousand tribal members whose belonging has been placed into peril by tribal politicians. So I'm really happy that you're casting uh, the spotlight on this uh, neo-colonial practice that threatens our collect collective future and existence. It absolutely does. And, you know, it's always blown my mind that more people aren't talking about it as much as they should, considering that the ramifications are so huge because, you know, it goes beyond just individual families and individual people, you know, being impacted. Like this is a practice that really does threaten our entire future because, you know, once we start eliminating each other, then, you know, what was the point of all our survival <laughs> up to this point? especially because there's no really no good reason for it except for, you know, just the overall corruption and greed that really drives disenrollment. So for people who are really unfamiliar with this practice, could you kind of explain to them what tribal disenrollment is? Tribal disenrollment is a quote-unquote process, so air quotes around the word process, by which tribal politicians extinguish their own relative's birthright. And you alluded to the why, meaning why that happens, and is predominantly to concentrate power and sustain power once these politicians have reached political office, and to concentrate wealth within uh, a tribe, specifically towards uh, their political base, which also furthers their political careers. But there are various pretextual reasons for disenrollment. These politicians will claim that families were erroneously enrolled or fraudulently enrolled or do not have the requisite blood quantum. Um, but that is always a front for what is really happening, which is an effort to sustain power and concentrate wealth and ultimately eradicate political opponents or families who threaten uh, that status quo, meaning um, power and wealth. Um, in some states, there is no process whatsoever. And I say states because 
tribes in a state like California, subject to a law like Public Law 280, um, which has um, frustrated the development of tribal courts. Tribes in those states um, have disenrolled their own people, and those folks have no process whatsoever except uh, before the tribal politicians, meaning there is no court, no tribal court, no state or federal court that will hear their case. And that is why you have a predominance of disenrollments having happened in California without any recourse whatsoever. Even in other places, non-PL-280 states, where there are tribal courts, disenrollments still get carried out because the tribal politicians control the tribal courts. Uh, the tribal judges receive paychecks from the people that are doing the disenrolling. Their future and livelihoods depend on those tribal politicians' uh, wishes and wants. And so even if there's a tribal court, you find yourself in a situation where the family members have nowhere to go, even on their own reservation for recourse, uh, because the court may not be as independent as we would hope it to be. So in short, it eliminates birthright and belonging and all of the things that go with that in terms of identity and a social safety net, a sense of community uh, and residents on a reservation or in a, in a, in a community. You know, and one of the examples of this um, for some of our listeners, especially here in California, um, was the Grand Ronde. They had 66 tribal members that were disenrolled in 2013. And a few of those families were disenrolled for being dually enrolled in another tribe, which isn't legal or allowed under any tribal constitution. But, you know, that's a whole other conversation. But for the majority of the tribal members that were involved in being disenrolled, the grounds for their membership being revoked was having to do with their ancestor not being listed on the original tribal role. And they were the descendants of Tumwath, who was the leader of the um, Walala band of Tumwaters. And in, I believe it was 1855, he was one of 47 tribal leaders that signed the Williamette Valley Treaty that formed the Confederate tribes of the Grand Ronde. And a year before the tribe was formally recognized, he was executed, which is why he was not on the original role. And but his descendants enrolled with the tribe. And, you know, to enroll with a tribe, you can't just say, you know, I'm a descendant of so and so or, you know, I think I'm a relative. You really do have to provide documentation and kind of prove that you are who you say you are. And the tribe usually has um, a department that will go through and also research to make sure, you know, that who you're claiming to descend from is actually that you actually descend from that family. You know, we do have tribal records that we can check against. And so, you know, they were enrolled because they had been able to pr provide the evidence that was needed for citizenship and to prove that they were who they were. And the tribe granted this family citizenship. So the question is, you know, why would a tribe be revoking tribal membership when they are not disputing, you know, the fact that these people were the descendants of Tumwath and that, you know, they are who they say they are and they can't dispute the role that he played in the, forma in the formation of their tribal history. But yet this family was still disenrolled. And again, it has to do with what Gabe was saying. You know, it came back to concentrating power and trying to um, concentrate the wealth within the tribe because a lot of tribes here do tend to have our per cap tribes. And 
disenrollment here is such a huge issue. Um, and it's not just something that is just happening under the radar. We're talking about violent conflicts that are happening, armed violent conflicts that aren't being discussed within the media just because of how erased indigenous issues are within the whole landscape. But, you know, in 2017, um, three years after, you know, these tribal members were disenrolled, a tribal appeals court did reverse that decision. But this is something that is very rare and something that, you know, is still happening within large. And Gabe has been on the forefront. Can you tell us a little more about some of the conflicts that you've been involved with? Well, yeah, one of them was Grand Run. We were uh, fortunate enough to keep that family of 66 enrolled in the tribe. And I'll just share a little bit more about that. You're, you're correct that the the treaty chief was was executed. And the question was whether they directly descended from anybody on a role generated by the federal government of Western Oregon Indians in the late 1800s. And they directly descended from really a folk heroine named Indian Mary. Um, but the question was, how could they tie their direct descendancy from her to her father, the treaty chief, by way of her mother, who was Susan, and was Susan on a roll? And just to show you how preposterous this is, the tribal politicians asked this family to essentially find some quote unquote vital record, meaning some state record that would establish that Indian Mary was the daughter of Susan, the wife of Tumul. Well, think about that for a minute. In the late 1800s, states were barely even formed as states. And it wasn't as if you could go to a county recorder and find a marriage certificate or a birth certificate for Indian Mary. Right. But that's essentially what they were asking this family to do. They said, where's the vital record that shows that Susan gave birth to Mary and therefore was Tumul's daughter? Well, there's no such thing. We would joke with our clients that that's like finding the magic unicorn. They would ask us to chase around national archives and state registries and county recorders to find a document that almost certainly, historically speaking, didn't exist. Not to mention at that time, of course, Native Americans were not considered American citizens. And women were hardly considered uh, citizens or even humans for the point of, you know, having them recorded and recognized. So it was this search for the magic unicorn. But what we did find, which was astounding, were cemetery records where Susan's children were ultimately buried in a tombstone with um, her, her mom, meaning grandma. And there was basically a plot of land where this family buried all of their children. And, and fundamentally, if Susan wasn't Mary's mom, why would Mary's children be buried in the same plot of earth with grandma? Um, and that's what we had to show to basically prove their existence. Um, it, again, it's just preposterous that anybody would have to go to those lengths to try to prove they belong. But that's essentially what is asked of these folks. Um, it's it's almost proof that can never be generated because if you go back that far in time, candidly, none of us are going to measure up. There's going to be no vital record for great great grandma and grandma or great grandma. It just doesn't exist, and it just underscores how preposterous this whole thing is. But thankfully, we went to a court of appeals there that was truly independent and uh, ultimately affirmed their right to belong. Um, and it's one of the greatest success stories in this entire line of work that certainly I've had an occasion to be participating in. And I think really that's happened at all. No, for real. Like I, you know, like I'd been following that for 
um, a while because I believe I was contacted by uh, Mia Pickett and yeah. uh, who had been trying to get word out like this was happening and this was her family being impacted. And I was just kind of blown away. Like, how is this even happening? <laughs> um, but, you know, and like Gabe saying, you know, there's not a lot of records, but what a lot of tribes, when you look at our tribal constitutions and what they require for um, citizenship, for example, I'll use my tribe. Um, my tribal constitution says that all persons whose names appear on the official membership role of the tribe as of October 14th, 1966, and all persons who are at least of one-eighth degree Oto Missouri tribal blood, dual enrollment prohibited, no person who is an enrolled member of another federally recognized tribe or band of Indians shall at the same time be a member of the Oto Missouri tribe of Indians. So a lot of tribal constitutions have those same stipulations where you have to be prove that you are a descendant of somebody who is on a role and not just any tribal role. Sometimes they will say specific roles and tribes have different roles. <laughs> um, we have three different tribal ro roles from three different times and um, you know, it's another way of just kind of making citizenship harder and weeding us out. Um, blood quantum is another measure that is usually required. And a lot of tribes are finally starting to move away from that and going to descendantship. But at the same time, like all of these standards are now up to the tribe. Like before, um, I believe it was for the UN when we were given the right to self-determination, you know, we kind of did have to follow certain guidelines set forth by the federal government in to have our sovereignty. But now our tribes have a say and our tribal constitutions can be amended. And when we're talking disenrollment, they absolutely manipulate our right to self-determination in order to try and, you know, make this quote unquote legal, um, you know, I'm trying to think, I believe it was the Saginaw Chippewa, um, Chippewa. Um, I believe that their constitution was amended 55 times within like five to seven years in order to disenroll and lock up tribal disenrollment or tribal enrollment just because they are a per capita tribe. So it was a way of keeping wealth within that tribe, making sure that they weren't having to cut their per cap payments and keeping it up. And it was a way to kind of sate people in a way to say like, oh, listen, if you let us disenroll this many people, you're not going to have to see a decrease in your per capita payment, which is how a lot of people kind of jump on this bandwagon because a lot of our tribes are still very poverty stricken. Um, and live in places where there's there's not a local economy, there's not jobs available. So, you know, they kind of hold this money over people. And, um, you know, we've seen the way that they manipulate that with the tribal constitution. And from a legal standpoint, Gabe, can you kind of explain like what some of the um, pitfalls are in trying to address tribal disenrollment? Well, yeah, so you should know Saginaw Chippewa is still disenrolling during a pandemic, as are other tribes, for reasons we've mentioned, predominantly per capita. And people need to recognize this per capita did not start after gaming was um, regulated by the Congress in 1988. Per capita goes back to, to my knowledge to, to 1790, to when the country was first born. And there was literally an Indian payroll established to make annuity payments. 
And the goal of annuity payments or per capita for over 230 years has been to make divisible communal wealth and communal strength, bestowing it upon individuals where it will weaken and ultimately dissipate and therefore to weaken and make divisible the tribe. So we have to recognize the the, the neo-colonial force that these per capita dollars is having upon us. And it is absolutely a driving factor at places like Saginaw, Chippewa in causing these mass disenrollments. Tribal politicians are getting rid of large swaths of the people, promising the people who, who will remain that they'll, their per capita will increase on a percentage basis. So for example, if there's a thousand tribal members, the tribal politicians say to those, you know, getting $500 a month, well, let's get rid of 500 of you uh, and the remaining 500 will now get $1,000 per month. And that's sort of the sick math that goes into this thing. But the challenge is finding jurisdiction to contest it. Again, in places like California, where there are no tribal courts of any uh, great number due to public law 280, there's nowhere to go on your reservation for recourse other than the tribal council, who becomes judge, jury, and executioner. State and federal courts across the country beyond California simply have suggested there's no um, no jurisdiction. And that's under a 1978 case decided by Thurgood Marshall, Santa Clara Pueblo versus Martinez, where he said the, the federal judiciary should tread carefully in uh, interfering with quote unquote, delicate matters of membership. And that's served as a signal to not just courts, but Congress and other politicians to basically take a hands-off approach, even in the most horrific disenrollments, where, like you said, violence accompanies the disenrollments, persecution accompanies the disenrollments, loss of housing, healthcare, employment, social safety net accompanies the disenrollments. There have been some very grotesque disenrollments, including at Nooksack, most notably. And because of that case, courts say, we don't have jurisdiction. And because of that case, anyone else who could politically weigh in, take a hands-off approach. So to answer your question, the challenge for disenrollees is finding anybody who will listen, any court or political court or court of public opinion that can cause their existence to be saved and cause the tribal politicians and tyrants to be stopped before they extinguish their birthrights. Absolutely. And you would kind of think that a lot of our tribal entities would be more involved in this considering, you know, this is the future of Indian country at stake here. But it wasn't until last year that the National Congress of American Indians even addressed disenrollment or citizens' rights. So, you know, it's, it is really hard to find people to take on these cases and to kind of have the guts to stand up a little bit because a lot of this falls under the guise of sovereignty. We're exercising our sovereign rights, but it's not real sovereignty if we're not protecting our people and we're just protecting entities of power like our tribal councils, which is a huge part of disenrollment. Um, you know, he was mentioning the Nooksack, and with the Nooksack, you know, this is a case that, and I believe, involves three hundred and six. Yes. And this is something that's been going on for quite a while, and the violence that is being enacted. This is like not just from, um, you know, the tribal council, but things that happen within the community, and on a tribal level, like kids are being denied, you know, access to the resources that are given to tribal kids for school, um, school supplies, clothing, 
Um, you know, housing is another thing. But there's also, I believe there was a case of domestic violence that has been um, kind of exacerbated by, by the disenrollment and by the corruption of the judges. Am I correct in that? Yeah, I mean, where to begin at Nooksack? Yeah. It, it, it is a blight on all of Indian country and nobody should tolerate it. But on in December of 2012, 306 Nooksack tribal members were proposed for disenrollment by irony alert, an adopted member of the tribe that had become elected as tribal chairman. He's a First Nations Canadian man, not Nooksack, who was adopted under a kinship tradition and had the audacity to claim that uh, the 306 relatives who he thought to be a political threat to his continued existence as chairman didn't have sufficient cultural ties to the tribe. So he started what is now a nine year odyssey to try to get rid of them. And along the way, they fired the judge who was standing in their way and replaced the judge with the tribe's attorney. They disbarred me so I could no longer appear in tribal court and advocate for them. They developed a new Supreme Court and appointed themselves as the Supreme Court justices. Um, they have basically incinerated their entire tribe. They've sent out police out to family members to serve papers uh, like a Gestapo, as the family sort of jokingly calls the tribal cops. And then when people stood up who were not being disenrolled and said, this is wrong, well, that councilwoman got recalled from office under an illegal recall. Uh, she ended up getting um, allegedly assaulted by uh, a tribal policeman uh, when she tried to run for office a second time. Another woman trying to go into tribal court to represent her sister who was being evicted because I couldn't. Uh, had hands placed on her by the same tribal police officer. Another family who spoke out against this ended up uh, getting another visit by the tribal cops on a Saturday after canoe journey. And the daughter was taken to jail and the dad was roughed up with his knee sprained, glasses broken and put in a cop car. So it's a violent police state in Nooksack and they have stopped at nothing, nothing to get rid of these 300 relatives. And right now, 63 of them living in 22 HUD homes are faced with eviction without due process, because again, I can't represent them, during a pandemic and during the holidays. It is the most grotesque exercise of quote unquote tribal sovereignty that one could possibly imagine. Yeah, it's, it's very frustrating because <laughs> There is no recourse, you know, it's, you know, like I've, I've seen families discussing, you know, their families being up for disenrollment, the hardships that it presents. But I think the worst thing is just the silence from the rest of Indian country. Um, you know, the NCAI, you know, just now is starting to kind of address citizen rights, but it's one thing to, you know, make a statement or to say it, but another to actually get involved and start using what resources are available to address the issue at hand. And that's something that I'm not really seeing. Um, and we've seen a lot of progress in some people facing disenrollment getting some wins. You know, in 2007, the Cherokee Nation disenrolled 2,800 Cherokee freedmen from their citizenship. Um, and citizenship for the freedmen was guaranteed under the Treaty of 1866, I believe, um, after emancipation after em emancipation and the slaves were freed um 
you know, it was part of an agreement that not only the Cherokee, but the other five civilized tribes made with the U.S. government was that, you know, the freedmen would be given citizenship. And in, two, you know, 2007, they ruled that, well, we're going to disenroll them. And they actually changed the wording of their constitution to say that enrollment and citizenship would only be considered by blood. Um, and that kind of brings up the racialization of indigenous identities because race, explicitly race-based laws um, are unconstitutional. And if indigenous identities get racialized, that means, you know, our sovereignty is at risk. Um, the laws that we have protecting, you know, native children under the Indian Child Welfare Act, for example, you know, all of these things would be ruled unconstitutional and voided. Um, so, you know, this is part of the reason why, you know, tribal disenrollment is just kind of like a growing threat to our sovereignty because we have all these genocidal policies still in place that we're still dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis. And when it comes to tribal disenrollments, you know, it's one thing for us to, you know, deal with the genocidal policies of the U.S. government because we know that, you know, it is the goal of the U.S. to eliminate the Indian problem. But it's one thing when we start becoming complicit and start driving that genocide as well. Um, so when it comes to like some of these struggles that you've seen and some of the progress on policy, what are some of the more, I guess, positive changes that you've seen in the way that disenrollment is starting to be handled? Well, let me unpack some of the stuff you talked about, all of which is awesome. We're talking about an epidemic in which 90 tribes, 15% of indigenous nations that are recognized federally by the United States have done this to their own people. 15% and counting during a pandemic, there are still tribes doing this. And they've eradicated roughly 10,000 tribal members. 15% of the tribes, 10,000 relatives. And to your point, none of the national organizations, National Congress of American Indians, National Indian Gaming Association, Native American Rights Fund, National Indigenous Women's Resource Center, are having any meaningful conversations about these issues. And not just disenrollment, because it is taboo, but what is fueling disenrollment, meaning neo-colonial blood quantum, neo-colonial per capita practices, and neo-colonialism in general. Why? Because all of those organizations, including the academic community and the legal academic community, which you would think would come to the rescue of these disenrollees, are all bought and paid for by the same gaming monies that fuel this insanity. The root cause of all of it, including the silence, is capitalism. But you're right, these issues threaten our existence. And disenrollment is a racial construct, just like blood quantum is a racial construct. And we start to combine these racial constructs, it does expose indigenous nations to attack like you see in Brackeen that this is all a race-based regime that is illegal under the constitution. And what you're ultimately right about is we are doing what the United States government, the colonizer could not do to us, which is kill the Indian, save the man. We are using the colonizer's own weaponry, roles per capita, blood quantum, to do what they could not do, which is extinguish ourselves. 
And it's not just disenrolling for another subject or another show, perhaps. There's a great number of tribes that are no longer enrolling their grandkids or their babies for the same reasons to keep the power and wealth concentrated in the adults. Think about that seven generations and we're not enrolling our kids or grandkids anymore. But to your point, there is hope. One conversations like this are happening, which would not have happened even five, maybe 10 years ago. Two, at least the National Congress of American Indians passed a resolution acknowledging for the first time in its 75 year history, at least the, the birthright to belong to an indigenous nation. It didn't go as far as I would hope, but at least there's now legislation at NCAI that says we hold sacred this individual right to belong along with other uh, indigenous rights. Um, and third, we Indian country, indigenous relatives are starting to have these conversations and basically re-educate ourselves about these things in ways um, that maybe we weren't allowed to understand before. We, we now understand blood quantum is a foreign practice which maybe we didn't always understand or didn't have time to understand. We now understand the origins of, of per capita not being pure or are necessarily in our best interest. We understand it's now repugnant for 90 tribes to exterminate 10,000 relatives. We fundamentally understand that we deserve human rights like every other resident or citizen of America. And the fact is we don't. On our lands, we do not have guaranteed human rights. And we're starting to realize that that is a problem if we're gonna sensate ourselves as peoples. So your question, the hope is in these conversations and in this re-education that we're doing amongst and between ourselves in recognition that these are not our ways and they should not be sustained. Absolutely, because, you know, there really is no honor or justice in taking away an individual or family's cultural and spiritual heritage, you know, because of, you know, these for, for power. And for, you know, all these things that as Indigenous people, you know, we're talking about these um, systems of oppression that we're trying to dismantle. You know, we talk about decolonization, but yet when it comes to tribal identity, when it comes to citizenship, and especially when it comes to allowing disenrollment to happen with silence and, you know, just pretending that because it's not affecting us right now, that it's not infecting us. You know, all of this is, um, in a way, I guess it's just kind of frustrating, you know, because we really can't decolonize, really decolonize, unless we're starting to address the fact that we do have an inherent birthright to belong. And, you know, especially now, we're seeing a lot of uh, discussions about pretendians, people claiming indigenous identities, which is also making it very difficult to address disenrollment because we're trying to figure out ways to protect our identities as indigenous people and our citizenship. But, you know, we're also kind of dealing with dueling factors here because we're starting to see these people who claim indigenous identities for, you know, for profit or for their own game or for whatever purpose that they have starting to kind of co-opt the language that we use as indigenous people. Um, you know, I think the most recent one was with uh, Carrie, Dr. Carrie Barasa. And, you know, she was outed as being a pretendian as claiming to have identity, indigenous identity when she doesn't. And her response was to release a statement saying that she was practicing her right to her own identity and membership in accordance with, you know, customs and traditions, according to the UN 
Declaration of Rights of Indigenous People. So can you kind of explain some of the um, the the legal, I guess you would say, discourse around um, Indigenous citizenship and identity as in regards to, you know, people just claiming to be Native? Yeah, well, first let me say that I think the biggest pretendians are disenrollment chiefs. Mm-hmm. The, the 90 chiefs or chairmen or chairwomen or politicians who have seen fit to extinguish their own relatives' birthrights. Those are the biggest imposters in Indian country. And no disrespect to anyone who's concerned about pretendians, because we should be concerned. Disenrollment chiefs are a far more acute threat to our existence than wannabes. But the other thing that they do is they give runway to the wannabes. Right. If we were more responsible with our citizenship laws and we moved away from neo-colonial blood quantum towards things like uh, lineal descent or reciprocal obligation to be a citizen, if we had more black and white rules about what it means to belong. And once you belong, you belong. For example, under the United States Constitution, no one who is born unto this land can have their birthright stripped by the Congress, according to the U.S. Supreme Court. It's black letter law. It never happens. That's why no one who is born here is threatened with their citizenship being revoked. There's not even a word for it. If we started treating citizenship like that in Indian country, there would be less runway for pretendians to to exploit, right? But right now there's so much gray area. We don't enroll our babies because of enrollment moratoria. We don't uh, protect our our current members because of disenrollment. We subscribe to blood quantum, a racial fiction. So what that does, if you don't create black and, and white lines on citizenship and then really honor and protect those lines, you create a bunch of gray area for people to exploit by complaining, quote unquote, modern, you know, kinship ties, I heard somebody suggesting, or all these other um, excuses to claim that they belong when they don't. So I think we need to get more serious about our citizenship and pass better citizenship laws and honor birthright, or we're going to have more pretendians. But you're right, that, that is a problem. It's most acute at academia. I think probably the best answer to that is to have Congress legislate a solution that will bind higher education to some set of standards and norms that will not allow it to hire people who are not authentic tribal members or don't authentically belong to indigenous communities to be employed. I think that's the best solution where ac- academia is involved. And then otherwise, you know, people know who belongs rightfully and who don't. And I think communities do a pretty good job of regulating that at home uh, and not allow those people who don't rightfully belong or are wannabes from participating. At, at the end of the day, you know, I'm not sure how we're going to ever completely resolve the fact that monies are being absconded with through people who are not authentic. I'm more worried about preserving culture, citizenship, and birthright and figure out how we can do that collectively to make that happen. Absolutely, because, you know, a part of the other thing is that we actually do have relatives who are disconnected. You know, they were, um, we have generations that were stolen, like through the 60s scoops and through the boarding school era that, you know, had their ties to their communities severed through no fault of their own. So we do have a lot of people who are starting to reconnect. And again, you know, disenrollment is kind of playing a huge role in making it harder for our nations to really build up, (laughs) 
you know, like we're, it's kind of funny because it's, it's like we talk about needing to build our nations, build our sovereignty and really own that, just our sovereign rights in general. But at the same time, you know, we're seeing a lot of tribes who are really just dishonoring that and making it harder for the rest of the tribes. Because one of the things that you know, like you were saying, you know, like we need to get serious about our citizenship. You know, we have nieces and nephews who can no longer be enrolled because, you know, either enrollment has been stopped or the blood quantum is, you know, so high because in some tribes, you still need to be considered, I believe, one half or one fourth, depending on what tribe. You have to meet that blood quantum. And if you pay attention to blood quantum, it is designed to decrease with every generation, um, with every birth in your family, you know, that blood quantum just goes down and down. Um, you know, in my tribe, um, the last time that blood quantum was lowered, it was from one fourth to one eighth. But now, you know, that, and that was probably about like, I'd say about 20 years now. So now you have, you know, kids who were enrolled at that time having kids and their kids can no longer be enrolled because they do not meet that one eighth degree of Indian blood. And, you know, we do need to get black and white rules. Like once you're a citizen that cannot be contested, um, you know, we do need citizens rights is really what we need. And because it is going to solve so many problems um, when it comes to, you know, trying to address like pretendianism, for example, you know, I really do see that as a problem, like you said, in more of the academic setting. Um, and part of the reason that we are addressing it and discussing it is because I think for the most part, you know, we were talking about earlier how with the NUCSAC, you know, the, the person who is making these decisions isn't a tribal member per se, you know, it's somebody who is adopted in. And, you know, we hear a lot of talk about adoption and traditional adoption. And, you know, like I know Johnny Depp was a huge um, example that we can all kind of just go right to. Um, you know, he was adopted into a family within the Comanche Nation, but it wasn't a tribal adoption. Um, and these are <laughs> there's certain distinctions that are made, um, you know, with adoption. Like if you're adopted into a tribe, um, for the most part, you are not given the right to vote. You are not given the right to go use IHS clinics or, you know, any of the rights that are reserved for tribal citizenships. It's more of a ceremonial designation. But with the NUCSAC, I'm kind of surprised um, because it seems that he was able to, like, how did that happen? <laughs> Good question. The good news is he's no longer the chairman. He was ousted a few years ago because his entire regime as chairman was focused on disenrollment. And at the risk of incinerating the entire tribe, he accomplished nothing else. And he ultimately was not elected. And I don't know if he went back to Canada or not, but yeah, insane irony that an adopted Canadian First Nation member brought into the tribe under a kinship tradition of inclusion and belonging would then try to get rid of 15% of that tribe. But he's not on the scene at the moment, to my knowledge, but I suppose he could come back at any time. But let, let's not you know, forget, and your point is a good one, too. These sort, of, these sort of adoptions of celebrities are a problem, too. You know, tribes are giving names to people like President Obama. They're adopting ce celebrities. You know, that undermines kinship. 
there was a very specific tradition in a great many number of indigenous societies where, where non-indigenous peoples, including settlers, including not just white settlers, African-American uh, slaves, Chinese um, settlers were adopted into tribal society because they belonged, they incorporated, they intermarried, they intermingled. Um, in some respects, there was no practical distinction between um, an indigenous person and, and that settler. And so there was a tradition of inclusion and not leaving anybody left outside. That's in stark contrast to giving somebody a name for political power or giving somebody a name or adopting them for some sort of prestige. And that also undermines citizenship. It also undermines kinship. It also undermines belonging in ways that allow pretendings and others to exploit what it means to belong as a citizen or otherwise to an indigenous, indigenous society or nation. And then blood quantum, which you also raise, it blows my mind that we are still subscribing to blood quantum, which is a fiction. There is no such thing as one quarter or one eighth nomaki or concow blood running through my body. That is not how my body works. That is not how we work as human beings. It is not a biological thing. It is a racial fiction that was brought here by folks from Europe under an inheritance theory, which has since been debunked, which said you basically inherit your parents or your grandparents' traits and sort of gave rise to this notion of race. And then it was perpetuated by eugenics, which has also been debunked. But this idea that there is some percentage of the blood running through our vein that is settler versus tribal versus band versus something else is preposterous. It's, it's not a thing and we continue to subscribe to it. In fact, 70% of the indigenous nations today use blood quantum as the metric of belonging. So we are in an identity crisis when we use something that is fictional, fictional as the mode by which we include or exclude people. And that is a massive problem that must be resolved before too late, because you're correct. Blood quantum was brought to us by the colonizer to statistically extinguish us. And if we keep running the math out by decimal points, we will eventually extinguish ourselves. Which was kind of the goal, right? Because I think the U.S. government realized, you know, as you know, their as their society was changing, that, you know, it was no longer acceptable to just outright slaughter us the way that they were, that they could no longer get away with that, that I think they kind of engineered these methods to which one we were forced to adopt these in the beginning in order to have sovereignty in order to be recognized as tribal recognized as federally recognized tribes like we had to adopt to certain standards and certain metrics of you know what we had needed to do to prove that we were native you know what i mean but I think they I kind of understood that if they could get us to agree to those terms from the get-go, that eventually it would become so normalized that we would start subscribing to it ourselves and start believing it. And we do because we see a lot of natives who are really proud of their blood quantum. Um, <laughs> you know, you have people saying, I'm 100%, I'm 100% this. And we hear people talking about, you know, the lack of full-blooded natives. But I know a lot of full-blooded natives. 
I know a lot of natives who are the product of, you know, just native on native on native, like our blood cannot be fractionated people. Like we cannot be a quarter Oto or quarter this. And we start seeing, um, I always think we were kind of like the testing grounds for this. Like how far could they go if they could just get one people to believe that their identities could be reduced because essentially it's also a product of like patriarchy in a sense, because it's giving a lot of power to penises. And I know that sounds funny to a lot of people, right? But it's almost like we could be screwed out of existence as native people. And that's not true, but we also start seeing this coming into society in large right now with all these ancestry tests. And we see a lot more people now, not just natives, but we see a lot of other people saying, no, I'm, you know, 32% this, I'm 32% that, I'm like 1% this or half a percent this. And it's like our identities as people cannot be fractionated. They can't, we can't be a percentage of different identities. We are who we are fully. Um, you know, I'm Otomazura and Choctaw, and I, but I'm not half Choctaw. I'm not half Otomazura. I am fully Otomazura and Choctaw because, you know, that's how I was born and raised. That's how I grew up. And it's not something that can be fractionated. My brothers and sisters are what we consider white passing um, because their dad is non-native. And so, you know, they're white and native, but they're not half native and they're not half white and they're not half, you know, a quarter Oto or a quarter Choctaw. They are Choctaw, Oto and white. It's just who they are. And it doesn't make a difference in like our in our tribe, like their identities don't make them any more or any less native. They're just native. Um, but these are all like hard conversations that we need to have because the ramifications are really steep. Um, because if they could get Native American people to eliminate themselves on paper to where, you know, we can extinguish our own sovereignty, where we basically just erase ourselves. Imagine what they can do to everybody else, because it always has been kind of like the goal of the U.S. to create a homogenized, very generic American identity. Um, when you really think about it, every single group of people that have come to this nation to settle or to make a life here, whether it was by their choice or not, um, have had to sacrifice their identities. They've had to sacrifice their languages, their cultures, um, pretty much everything think about who they are in order to be American. And this is something that we're starting to see on a grander scale. Um, you know, we see these in discussions where they're just like, why do you have to be Native American? Why can't you just be American? Why do you have to be African American? Why can't you just be American? Um, we're starting to see this kind of play out on a grander role. <laughs> and it's kind of scary, to be honest, because, you know, race is a racial construct. But, you know, a lot of the protections that we have um, in order to protect, you know, like marginalized communities within this nation, um, if they can homogenize that, if they can erase those, then those protections go away as well. And then it's just a free for all. But um, anywho, back to <laughs> back well, to yeah, the let topic. Me, let me react to that because you're exactly right. Right, these okay. percentages correspond to phenotype, and 
let's recall the baby Veronica case where Justice Samuel Alito started the opinion reciting baby Veronica's one 128th blood degree. The idea is if you are a fraction, some, some 100th or 1,000th quote unquote Indian, and you look anything less than someone with dark skin, they're gonna start to treat you, treat us as if we are not indigenous. And in decisions like that, you can see how the Supreme Court is not afraid of basically undermining indigeneity and indigenous citizenship and indigenous belonging by relying on this racial fiction of blood percentage and phenotypical appearance. And Brackeen poses the same threat. That, is, that suggests that the Indian Child Welfare Act is unconstitutional because it is a racial classification. Well, when 70% of the tribes in this country use race, specifically racial fiction as a metric of belonging, you are feeding into this argument that laws passed to protect indigenous children are race-based. If 70% of the kids in this country, in Indian country, are their tribes are, are enrolling based on race, you are just teeing up this idea that that is a race-based law. And at some point, they are going to take a swipe at a law like the Indian Child Welfare Act, and it will undermine our very existence as nations. So this is a very real, acute, and present threat that we are not doing enough to, um, to minimize and to deter and to mitigate against. If we continue to use this false idea of blood percentage, playing into phenotypical racism, and racial challenge, our entire existence, all 570 some odd indigenous nations existence will be under threat at the stroke of a pen by the Supreme Court or the stroke of a pen by the Congress under whose power we remain subordinate to. That is what we are talking about. And it is a massive problem that we are not talking about nearly enough. And I'm glad you're having this conversation with me. Yeah, I'm kind of glad I went off on that tangent. <laughs> because, you know, I mean, it really does raise a lot of questions on what is possible when people start taking hold of these ideas and assimilating to them. Because that was kind of, you know, we talk about like the pattern of anti-indigeneity. Um, you know, there's assimilation, extermination, there's integration, um, there's ex expulsion, you know, there's there's all these ways that have come into play in order for, you know, the U.S. to kind of set up this power dynamic to where, you know, it kind of upholds like white supremacy and capitalism. But there's all these different ways that they do it. And we see these ways recycled within every generation in different ways. Um, you are talking about, you know, we're talking about the Indian Child Welfare Act. Almost every year, there is a new challenge being brought up to the Indian Child Welfare Act. And they're getting more and more clever because they're starting to use our discussions against us. Um, you know, we've been talking a little bit about pretendianisms and the ramifications of, you know, people claiming to have indigenous identities and playing into these racial phenotypes. And we're starting to see them using the conversations that we're having to strengthen their challenges, to bring up the fact that, well, if they're using this as a metric of citizenship, then, you know, this is a valid 
reason why this Indian Child Welfare Act is a race-based law and is therefore unconstitutional and needs to be repealed. Like we see these coming up almost every year, there is a new challenge and they're getting harder and harder to be. And we've been kind of very lucky um, that the wording has been so concrete on this and that we've had tribes who that are, you know, that have always been able to back up the Indian Child Welfare Act and really make a strong argument that our identities are socio-political as opposed to racial and that our identities are more based on kinship and community and tradition. But, you know, it's starting to get to that point where if they start co-opting our language and the conversations that we're have we're having, then we need to rethink the way that we're having these conversations. And, you know, I've been saying this for a while that we need to be more purposeful and more deliberate in the way that we're talking about these conversations, because the more we talk about pretendianisms, the more we talk about indigenous identities, it's starting to lean more towards racializing. Like we're starting to see people move more towards, well, you know, it needs to be a more pan-Indian kind of identity. Like we need to move more to that to be more inclusive um, in regards to identity and citizenship. But at the same time, when we start racializing our identity, then we're kind of setting ourselves up for failure. And there's a lot of hard conversations that we need to be having um, and how we move away from having those conversations and addressing those real issues, like addressing that blood quantum is, you know, racial fiction, that it has no basis in science or DNA or anything concrete. Like this is literally just a number and a method that they came up with to eliminate us on paper. Um, And these weren't numbers that, you know, they gave our ancestors a blood test. This is a number that was assigned to our ancestors. And, you know, the more that we don't talk about this or the more that we kind of keep these conversations in very narrow scopes, you know, the more danger we kind of put ourselves in. Yeah. I mean, the fact remains that all of the stuff we're talking about, all the colonizers' tools, roles, blood quantum, per capita, disenrollment, the origins of all this dates back to the very beginnings of our country, which scares me because um, 250 years later, you know, we're still here barely having the conversation and NCI took 75 years to, to just pass a resolution that acknowledged the right to belong. And there's no meaningful conversation happening in any of these intertribal forums or within any of these NGOs. I mean, the, the, we are on the clock and we are going to systematically, statistically and mathematically extinguish ourselves unless we start the conversation in earnest right now. Again, the, the die was cast on us hundreds of years ago and we don't have the courage to talk about it because we're all afraid one, we could be next, which is why we don't uh, often criticize our own tribes because we don't have human rights protection. Uh, two, there's some taboo associated with criticizing other tribes. Why, I don't exactly know. And three, the entire system that is Indian country is founded now upon the same dollars that underpin these human rights abuses, particular gaming money and per capita. And so the people that are in positions of power, their status quo is tied up in all of what is wrong that we're talking about. 
And so they are loath to expose that existence. But we have to before it's too late. We really do. And, you know, we're kind of winding up here. So if there's anybody who has questions for Gabe, um, just go ahead and hit the request to speak button and we will get you on so you can ask your question. Or if you have, want to share your own experience or add to the conversation, um, go ahead and hit that request to speak. But you're open. Oh, we got one person here. So let me get them on air game. Okay. Hi, Deborah. Um, did you hear me? Oh, hi. Okay. Hi. <laughs> oh, good. I'm sorry. My name is Deborah, and I'm a good friend of Gabe, and Gabe knows who I am. We're lawyers together. Uh, and um, it's so interesting as an older, elder, native woman, been a lawyer for 34 years, elected official, listening to you young folks talk about things that we knew were coming back in the 80s, particularly after gaming. So I just want to leave you with this, and I think Gabe touched on it, and I think you actually articulated it without actually saying it. And you know the famous poet Audre Lorde, what she said about the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. And Gabe is right. We don't have the tools because we haven't indigenized or created those indigenous tools to dismantle this whole hierarchy, this whole structure of what and who we are and how we decide who each other is, except for the kinship model, the kinship understanding. And I hope that, and the other thing Gabe pointed out, and Gabe's also got a great article coming out that I'm editing right now, Gabe, very well done. Um, it's a train coming right at this generation. And um, I have more years um, behind me than I have in front of me. And I have a 30-year-old daughter and a 27-year-old daughter. And my fear is that my grandchildren may not be enrolled. Um, and if we don't, as Native folk, start talking about this issue, then, as you said, we are going to um, write ourselves right out of existence because the way that they looked at us, like my grandma and grandpa in the 30s, you're right, they just decide it's a number and the number keeps going down. And we cannot stay within this the societal construct of this of this math. It, it that's not who we are. We're human beings. And I've worked with Gabe on issues. And my biggest fear, which hurts me as a Native woman, watching other Native people or people that are born and raised on my reservation who speak Blackfeet, but can't be enrolled. And it's just wrong. And I'm hoping that this generation is going to look at how the same generation looks at climate change. Like it is a big deal and it's not going away. And the people that have to change it are going to be the people in this generation that is going to have to live it. So I hope it happens in my lifetime. And thank you. All right. Thank you so much. Okay. If there's yeah. anybody else who has a question or would like to respond to any of the conversation that we've had, just hit the request to speak button. Well, I'd be remiss if I didn't recognize and thank my big sister, uh, Seattle City Councilwoman Deborah Arez, who you just heard from. Uh, she, in many ways, has inspired everything that I'm saying and doing today and certainly taught me early on in my career what it, what kinship means in the context of law and policy. So I just want to lift my hands to her and uh, recognize and honor her for being on this call with us. It means a lot to me personally. Yeah, and, you know, and what she was saying really hit because... <laughs> You know, I'm thinking of the conversations that we've had and just 
you know, none of us are safe from tribal disenrollment. It doesn't matter if you're a knowledge keeper or a spiritual leader within your tribe, you're literally not safe from this practice. Um, I'm thinking back to uh, the Chick the Chanzi, like they disenrolled 400, over 400 members. And one of the members that was robbed of her citizenship was one of the last fluent is was the last fluent speaker of their tribal language. So if you're disenrolling, you know, elders, if you're disenrolling those knowledge keepers and, you know, your spiritual leaders, if even they aren't safe, then you're really eliminating your own tribal identity. Like, especially at a time when I think Indian country is working really hard to reclaim all of these things that were stolen from us through colonization, you know, our languages, our traditions, and now we're having to contend with our own tribal governments to preserve our citizenship, to preserve our identities. It's such a, <laughs> it really just blows your mind. Like it's a very confusing time right now because, you know, it's nobody's safe. And, you know, this is something that I don't think we've mentioned in our discussion, but they're not just disenrolling people who are living. They are actually going back and disenrolling relatives who are deceased and can't speak for themselves and can't defend themselves. And when they do this, what it effectively does is reduce that entire family's bloodline throughout their tribal history. And it's a very, it's a very just heartbreaking issue that we're dealing with in Indian country. And it's terrifying because nobody's safe. No, you know, we may be lucky enough to not be dealing with this right now, but this is a growing practice. And the more that I've looked into this and, you know, I'm, I, I've actually taken part in um, a documentary that started out as dealing with disenrollment and they've kind of shifted gears a little bit um, to focus more on the people and not so much, you know, the, the issue at hand. But one of the things that I was had that really blew my mind is the fact that there are actually entities that are going in, non-native entities, that are making money by going in and teaching tribes how to disenroll their tribal members. Like how, like how do they get through some of the legal loopholes, how they do this, and ways that they can frame it so that there's not much backlash. Like these are actually trainings that happen at conferences that are happening around Indian country. And these are things that, you know, I don't think we really think about. I don't think a lot of people really pay attention to them. But these are things where non-natives are also profiting from tribal disenrollment. Um, and again, it goes back to, you know, the entire goal of the U.S., which was to eliminate the Indian problem. Now they're helping us to become the weapon. Like we're literally weaponizing our own tribal councils against indigenous people. And it's such a mind blowing thing to think about. Yeah, again, so much to unpack there, but just the idea that we're not safe. And just think about that. We're the only people in this country citizen or resident or so-called alien who don't have universal human rights protection. And so that's why we don't criticize our own elected leaders really at all, because we are afraid we could be next. We could be disenrolled. We could lose our home. Our families could lose their homes. We could lose our jobs. 
our aunties and uncles could lose their jobs. We could be persecuted and there's nothing we could do about it. So not only do we not say anything, which stymies the development of our nations, mistakes are going to be made and they should be addressed and resolved and you move forward. We can't develop as nations unless we have candid conversation about things that maybe didn't go right. We don't do that. Not only that, we don't say anything when we see hundreds of relatives being persecuted. Cops putting hands on women, although we're happy to criticize the non-Indian world for MMIW. Families being removed from housing, although we're happy to plead for more money in Congress. Um, kids being deprived of backpacks, we're happy to claim, explain to the external world that our education isn't sufficient. I mean, we sit here and tolerate all this internalized oppression while externalizing all of our criticism. And we will never succeed or thrive in that particular state. And you're also right. People that are being disenrolled include the dead. There's a thing called posthumous disenrollment because a lot of these IRA constitutions, if you were born into a tribal member or your mom was born into a tribal member, you automatically belong. So these tyrants actually go back and they disenroll ancestors who of course are not here to defend themselves. But how dishonorable have we become when we are on paper going through a process by which our ancestors are being excluded from our tribe. One tribe actually had an ancestor exhumed so that her bones could be tested for DNA. And if that were not repulsive enough, when it was 99 point some odd percent certain that the current living descendants were her direct lineal descendants, they disenrolled them anyway. Right, so look at what we've become for sake of per capita and power. We are doing the most repugnant, repulsive, reprehensible things to ourselves, things that perhaps not even non-Indians have done to us yet. And we're doing it to ourselves for sake of money and power. And finally, you're also right. There are actually so-called auditors, non-Indians, who will come in and quote-unquote audit your roles. And based upon these auditors' findings, tribal politicians are getting rid of their kin. So not only are we making a decision of who's in or who's out, we're, ex we're basically exporting that to some non-Indian to come in and look at our roles and tell us who belongs. And that becomes the basis for getting rid of people. That is how sad and sordid and sick and twisted this situation has become. And we have to reckon with it. We absolutely do. And we're coming up on time, everyone. So I'd like to thank you all for listening. And Gabe, thank you so much for being here tonight and for sharing your experiences and your wide wealth of knowledge on this issue. I really do appreciate it. Um, but again, thank you to everyone for listening. And Gabe, could you tell people where they could learn more about the work that you're doing and where they can find you online? Well, I'm in Seattle and our website uh, is galandabroadman.com. I'm on Twitter, NDN Lawyer. Uh, I'm on other social media devices, um, but uh, I would welcome any call or email or text that you might want to give me uh, that would further this conversation. And thank you again, Johnny, for having me and, and casting a spotlight on these issues. It's cru crucial. Well, thank you so much. And again, thank you for being here. I really appreciate it. Um, and to everyone else, thank you all for listening to Indigenous Flame. Join us every Monday and Friday at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific time for more conversation and have a good evening. <laughs>